poetry has become as important to me as any reading and contemplating I do, which is why I'm always eager to remind you about our ongoing initiative, the Poetry Radio Project. It's a place where you can discover the poetry that so many of our guests fold into their lives. And you can also delve deep into reading and listening to the many wonderful poets we've had on the show. Check out one of my favorites that Mary Oliver read for us, I Happened to be Standing. You'll also find Naomi Shihab Nye, John O'Donohue, Laylee Long Soldier, and many, many more. All that at onbeing.org slash poetry. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Christian Wyman is a writer who has come to give voice to his own surprise, to the hunger for faith and the challenge of faith for people now. His Texas upbringing was soaked in both a history of violence and a charismatic Christian culture. He wasn't formally religious for years after he left home, lived all over the world, and became a poet. Then when he was in his late 30s, he married the love of his life, found God again, and was diagnosed with an incurable, unpredictable cancer. So Christian Wyman is more aware of his mortality than most of us. And he's bearing a kind of poetic witness to something new happening in himself and in the world. I am convinced that the same God that might call me to to sing of God at one time might call me at another to sing of godlessness. Sometimes when I think of all of this energy that's going on, all of these different people trying to find some way of uh, naming and sharing their belief, I think it may be the case that God calls some people to unbelief in order that faith can take new forms. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Christian Wyman is a professor in religion and literature at the Yale Institute of Sacred Music. He's published several volumes of poetry and prose. Most recently, Hammer is the Prayer. I spoke with him in 2012 when he was the esteemed editor of Poetry Magazine. He's a prolific writer of essays that are philosophical or theologically reflective and always in their own way both honest and poetic. One called The Limit, for example, begins with this arresting sentence. I was 15 when my best friend John shot his father in the face. But details of that shooting at which he was present and of Christian Wyman's own destructive anger as a child mingle with observations like this. It was nearly dusk, my favorite time in West Texas, the light like steeping tea, shadows sliding out of things. I always talk to people about this, and I've heard and read a lot of stories about the interesting ways religion and spirituality get communicated to us as children. I have to say, Christian, that your story of all of them that I've heard all these years is the most familiar to me. Um, Growing up absolutely immersed in this religious universe, which meant everything, right? But then when I left that place, and like you, I went far, far away— the religious piece stopped to make sense as well because it was the whole package. Yeah, I think uh, for me it was a big loss. I didn't realize exactly how large a loss for years because I just, like so many people, dispensed with it uh, yeah. and became an agnostic or whatever you want to call it. But um, I wonder, you know, I've got little kids now and and I do think about what I should teach them and how I should teach them in, in terms of their spiritual lives Um because I greatly value the way I was raised, which was you know, completely immersed in that culture. And yeah. Going to, in you, a, did in you go world. to church like twice on Sunday and Wednesday night? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Sometimes yeah. even more. And we, yeah. you know, we had to learn Bible verses and say them in, at, uh, uh, in over the, the meals. And you know, we the knew the hymns yeah. and had the singing. And, and there was no uh, possibility of puncture to that world. You know, I never met anybody who didn't believe until yeah. I went off to college. Right. Never met a soul. <laughs> Right. You know, and I value the coherence of it and I value the intensity of it yeah. and, you know, the momentum that it's given my life. But it's also created all kinds of difficulties, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think there are a lot of people like us, though, in this country, and especially in, I don't know what we call the Bible Belt, but I'm not sure when you get outside the Bible Belt, I'm not sure it's a narrative people recognize. I think that's true. I think, and I, I have discovered that there are, there's an enormous number of people in this in this country who are, uh, you know, they have some kind of religious language that's they're just unhappy with. It's yeah. not. It doesn't accord with their, you know, their feelings of the sacred or their feelings of what spirituality means, and they're casting about for some new way of believing. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, you can't just jettison everything that you that you have. You know. Yeah. I, I also wonder about the origins of your life as a poet. Um, you know, in one of your essays, you 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 start by saying when you were that when you were twenty years old, you set out to be a poet. But I guess I'm curious too about, you know, where you see the inklings of that, or the impulses, or hungers, or habits that were there earlier in your life that then somehow came to life at that point when you were twenty. Well, I certainly wrote when I was a little kid. I just didn't really know that there were poems. I didn't. Uh, I mean, my mother is a creative person. She would. Mm paint and you know uh, and she would write things herself uh we weren't a family that read there weren't books around and but i did try to emulate the hymns that i heard and i would write these little fragments of things and little songs and in fact when we were i think i was six or seven years old we went to the first baptist church in dallas which at the time was the largest baptist church in the world i don't know if it still is Hmm. but took up four city blocks was this massive place and the guy's name was his brother chriswell i forget his first name but uh, they published the uh, Southern Baptist Newsletter out of there, and it was just this enormous place. And at the end of the service, you know, they would have what I'm sure you grew up with. They would have the call for people to be saved, and yeah. and people would flood the aisles at this place because there were thousands of of uh, people in the congregation. And so one day, I, when I was six or seven years old, I uh, left my family and ran down there. Didn't even tell them where I, they thought I was going to get saved, and. And uh, and I just handed him a poem that I had written, and the poem was, I love the Lord, and the Lord loves me. I will not forget, and neither will he. Wow. The whole thing. Wow. And then and then it turned up in the Southern Baptist Newsletter. He published it. You know, I, I turned around and ran back, and he'd published it in the Southern Baptist Newsletter, and there's this little poem there, you know, when I was, it's probably my biggest publication. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I would bet that you were the only editor of Poetry Magazine who's ever had his first poem published in the Southern Baptist Magazine. That's probably true. That's probably true. Although there have been editors who are very interested in theology. That mm-hmm. Henry Rego was very interested in theology. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then, of course, on another level, somewhere you wrote that your childhood was the very forge and working house of poetry. I mean, in terms of... Uh, the raw materials of drama and pathos and emotion. I mean, your childhood was, <laughs> there's so much violence in there, in your family. Well, I think, I, I think it's a, my family's very chaotic, you know, I, but I, I would not say that I'd had a difficult childhood compared to a lot of the people I've seen since then, because I, I was loved by my family. And, you know, a lot of people grow up without love. Yeah. Your mother's watched her father kill her mother. Yeah, that <laughs> happened when my mother was 14. Yeah, mm-hmm. she she watched her her father came in and and shot her mother and and the, my mother and her two brothers were sitting at the table and then and um oh, it's really an awful story. She turned around and my grandmother, her mother turned around and and said, "Oh, Fred, no." And you know, she realized what had happened. She got shot in the back. Mm. And the kids ran out and then uh, her father just lay down beside his wife and shot himself. And and my mother moved from place to place. That happened when she was 14 years old. And all those kids got separated. And they all, you know, came out, emerged out of that, but uh, not psychologically intact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I suppose what's just striking me right now as we talk is um, that story gets told, and it's very dramatic about that murder, but really what's astonishing about the story is, as you say, you were raised by this woman who went through that when she was 14, and and she loved you, and that was this defining thing that she was able to do, despite that. Yeah, well, I was raised in a very masculine culture, and I was, you know, I played football and went hunting, and I got in tons of fights when I was a kid, and, and um, I had that 
sort of masculine inclination and imperative in me and around me all the time. But when I look back at my life, it's my mother and my grandmother who really shaped me. That hmm. both of them, it's very, it's feminine consciousness is that I responded to. And both of them, my mother is a more educated person than my grandmother. And uh, my grandmother had a kind of consciousness that really it took me a long time to understand because I think many people would simply say it was unconsciousness. Uh, I mean, she lived within that religious culture that, that we talked about that was completely saturated and defined by you know Baptist theology. But she also lived in her world in a way that uh, is unlike you know anyone I've known since. Actually, she did, I mean she knew her world down to the least flower, the least creature that was in her yard, uh, you know, and every person that was in her life. Mm-hmm. And it was a kind of passive consciousness. And I, I like to use the word passive without any pejorative right. meaning, but a kind of passive consciousness that seems to me in some ways exemplary. And I think uh, poetry comes out of that. Um, you know, you say passive, but what I also think of is, is uh, embodied, you know, conscious. I mean, physical, incarnational almost, you could say, that in t- the in consciousness that all manifests itself in physical reality and is in touch with that. Yeah, I love that definition, actually. I think that's a great definition of the way she was. And I actually, I have a, um, there's a section in this book that is about her. Hmm. Um it says, she who in her last days loved too well to lose a single weed to namelessness in creosote, blue grandma, goat's beard that is not thriving, is amid the cattails brittle whisper whispers, oh law, honey, ain't this a praiseful thing? I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with poet Christian Wyman. He describes his own turn back to God as an ascent to a faith that remained latent in him from childhood. And he's drawn on disparate voices as he has sought to make sense of this for himself, from the French philosopher and social activist Simone Weil to the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who pondered what he called religionless Christianity from the Nazi prison in which he died. So one thing I really like in your poetry, and I think it connects also to your faith, is uh, this real tie to reality, which also gets intellectualized, the notion of reality. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and, yeah. Right? And um, I don't know, when I was reading through you, I, I also found a lot of... Um, reference to reality from Simone Weil, it is necessary to have had a revelation of reality through joy in order to find reality through suffering. Or even in this essay you wrote, Hive of Nerves, you talked about Christ using metaphors, um, but speaking the language of reality in terms of the physical world. So tell me about how you think poetry works with reality uniquely. Well, I think... um you know, I, I have been sick lately, and, and uh, I actually had a bone marrow transplant and was in the hospital for quite a long time. And one of the things, poetry died for me for a while. I found that it just wasn't speaking to me, and, and uh, I think I had certain expectations that uh, it took me a while to realize were false expectations. I think we often talk about poetry getting us beyond the world, taking us to the very edge of experience and mm-hmm. then getting us into the ineffable. And uh, I have to say, when I was, you know, faced with the actual ineffable, I didn't <laughs> want poetry that gave me more of the ineffable. Uh. What I wanted po- was was some way of apprehending the world that was right in front of me that was slipping away. I wanted the world, you know, in front of my eyes. And, and the poems that I found useful were absolutely concrete, sometimes not at all about religious things and not at all about spiritual things, but... but uh, simply reality and reality rendered in such a way that you could see it again. There's, 
There's a great uh, quote from the mid 20th century literary critic R.P. Blackmer. He's talking about John Berryman. He said that his work, you know, adds to the stock of available reality. It add, added to the stock mm. of available reality. And that's a good way to think about what a real poem can do. It it suddenly makes the amount of reality that you have in your life greater. Makes you you're able right, to right. able to apprehend more of it. You know, recently I was talking to a physicist, a string theorist who's working with a new kind of mathematical language. And the analogy we were talking about is the difference between poetry and prose. And so the fact that there are truths you simply can't convey in a factual sentence, right? Hmm. That, and it seems possibly that there are physical realities that you can't convey with an equation, but that a more visual mathematics might be able to convey. Hmm. Gosh, that's interesting. I think that's why physics is so fascinating yeah. to many of the poet, you <laughs> yeah. know, contemporary poets these days. It's a, uh, There is some kind of... Uh, reality that's being revealed that we can only reach through our through oblique ways it's i i yeah you know i think it reaches way back it's why i'm drawn to uh mystics like meister eckhart and uh and and more contemporary ones like simone Weil and language of apophasis where you you state something but it, you, the statement sort of unstates itself so that meister eckhart said you know we ask we pray to god to be free of god we ask god to be free of god right. and i don't think he wanted to you know, give up his religion, uh, he, that the idea wouldn't have occurred to him, but he wanted to give up that idea of God as being this thing outside of our consciousness. And I think uh, one thing poetry can do is take us to those places where reality slips a bit. You know, what we think yeah. of as reality slips a bit, like those those equations in physics, and suddenly we're perceiving something differently than before. And it's not it's not this. Uh, it's not all airy fairy mysticism either. No, it's, it's, no. It's it's quite uh, angular and hard, hard edged, and that's what I think the uh, analogy is with the with physics and with physical science. So it's it's very interesting that um, your return to faith was very much connected to finding love. And I'm, yeah, it was. <laughs> and you know, it I'm was. I'm resisting saying falling in love because we do throw it around so much, and it's something you fall in and to and fall out of. Yeah. But, but what you have really, really dug into, you know, love as something that puts us in touch with transcendence and with mystery. You were just really aware of that and articulate about it. Well, I think um, uh, I mean it was a revelatory time for me because I certainly would never have said those things in the past. I had to have the experience to be able to write about it. In fact, I would have uh, actively denigrated the notion, probably. The notion of? Uh, oh, the notion that uh, that love could open up the world for you in that way. You know, there's a, there's a, we just published a poem in the magazine by a poet named Spencer Reese, who's uh, become an Anglican priest, as it happens, and he's talking about a, the whole poem is an elegy for someone he knew, and uh, it's trying to get at the truth of his life. And he says, all I know is that the more he loved me, the more I loved the world. Mm. And I think in any genuine love, and it's not simply romantic love. Right. It's other love, loves. Yeah. Yes. It's our love for yeah. our children. Yeah. It's friendships. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's some kind of uh, excess energy. We tend to think of love as closing out the world and we can only see the face of the beloved and and you know that everything else goes quiet or goes numb. And but actually, what I experienced was that, and I've experienced it again with my children, is that the love demanded to be something else. It demanded to be expressed beyond the expression of the participants. You know, it kept demanding more. Yeah. And um, that excess energy, I think, is uh, God. And I think it's God in us trying to return to its source. I think it's, I, I don't know how else to understand it, but the if I think of myself as having returned to faith, and I do think of that, although I feel like I'm a desperately confused person. And when people look to me for, <laughs> for advice or, or direction on faith, I just feel sometimes like it's hilarious. But, um, you know, I think we have these experiences and, and they are, people react against the word spiritual these yeah. days. They, they But... Uh, I don't know what other word to use at this point. They are spiritual experiences. And then religion comes after that. Religion is everything that we do with these moments of intense spirituality in our lives. 
whether it's whatever practice we have, whether it's going to church, whether how it's how we integrate sacred texts into our lives, being religious or taking on some sort of religious elements in your life, you're not necessarily saying, I agree with everything that's, that this religion says. What you are saying is that I've had these incredible experiences in my life of suffering or joy or both, and they have uh, demanded some action of me and that demanded some continuity of me. Mm -hmm. And the only way that I know to do this is to uh, try to find some form in it and try to share it with other people. I actually wanted to ask you about the words faith and belief. You know, you've written, faith is not a state of mind, but an action in the world, a movement towards the world. The way I've de defined it to myself is I think of belief as having objects. Uh, faith doesn't have objects. Uh, faith is an orientation of your life. Mm. That, okay. that, uh, or it's, or it's an, an energy of your life or, you know, however you want to define it. But I think it is objectless. It doesn't have to be faith in. Because right. that's how it gets, Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. And and that has helped me to at least understand those terms somewhat and uh, to, to explain to myself why I do need some sort of structures in my life. I do need to go to church. I need uh, specifically religious elements in my life. I find that if I just turn all of my spiritual impulses, if I let them be solitary as I am comfortable in being, I'm comfortable sitting, reading books and yeah. and trying to pray and and meditating, inevitably, if that energy is not focused outward, it becomes despairing. It turns in on itself, and, and I will look up in a couple of months, and I find that I'm in despair. Hmm. And so I think that uh, uh, one of the ways that we know that our spiritual inclinations are valid is that they lead us out of ourselves. Your story to me is very much an example also of this phenomenon of our time where we choose these things, where we create our spiritual lives, which is really new. You know, you were given this religious world as a center of gravity in your childhood, which a lot of people were until just a decade or two ago. And then there's the image I have of you and your fiancé standing outside this church. Was it right the day you got engaged? That's right, and, and not going in. Not going yeah. in, but then eventually deciding to go in. Yeah. I think uh, it's a perilous, difficult situation for people to, for everyone to be left on their own trying to choose <laughs> to their spiritual life. <laughs> right. And I think that's that's a lot of, you know, mid-century Protestant theology led by Karl Barth was a reaction against this, yeah. um, that, you know, you can't simply trust your gut, trust your impulses that we've got to have some way of uh, of finding God together, and uh, for him it was it was the Bible, and uh, he was he was very conservative in in certain ways, and I I just cannot go there. I cannot follow. I don't think we can just recover orthodoxy in the same, in that way. I think I really feel that a whole new language is being created, and there's too many people who are struggling with this, and uh, I mean. Traditional religious language is part of it and will be part of it, but a whole new thing is being created, and it's it's going to involve other religions. It's going to involve other practices. I don't think you can simply resist it and say, you know, I'm going to just have my little corner and keep it safe and secure. I think a lot about um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in prison before he died in an extreme situation of having seen the church and orthodoxy and religious language be completely co-opted by evil. Yeah. But saying, you know, starting to talk about what would religionless Christianity look like, but, but also what saying that he thought that even as the language and the ideas might cease to be relevant, that the truths behind them would persist. And kind of what you just said, that new language and new forms would continually be recreated to express those. Yeah. I often, I love Bonhoeffer, and I'm struck by something else he said, that he said in a letter that he was often 
more drawn to atheists, and he had felt more fellow feeling with atheists than he yeah. did with his fellow believers. Yeah. Um, and he was trying to un- understand that uh, in himself. I find Bonhoeffer an incredible figure because, uh, I mean, not simply because he returned to Germany when he could have had a safe life in the United States. He, you know, he returned and and he felt like if he didn't share in the destruction of Germany, then he couldn't credibly participate in its restoration. Yeah. And and he also simply felt that he had a call. You know, we wait for wait and wait and wait for the right thing to do in our lives. But he says, no, 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 you, you've got to obey, follow that impulse, even as hazy as it is, and then your faith will come. You don't get it first. You don't get it first. You know, so he, he lost his life in that. Um, he also said at one point, you know, God has called us to be in a world without God, yeah. before right. God and without God, we stand with, with God. And some of, some of his statements have the feeling of poetry. They seem so wonderfully suggestive. Yes, absolutely. So when you said a minute ago, you know, we're developing a new language. I mean, to me, um, that spiritual clarity and in fact, you know, or, Let's say Bonhoeffer also was orthodox, certainly. Yeah, he was um, very orthodox. You know, the spiritual clarity, orthodox clarity, and what, for lack want of a better word, we can call openness to reality, let's say. Um, I, I feel like that's what we're grasping for now. And but So when you see in somebody like Bonhoeffer, those things were not in contradiction. It was... It was there is some... Yeah? Yeah, there's and some... And that's what you're describing in yourself, that... Yeah. There is some combination of austerity and clarity that I think we as a whole culture are grasping toward. And the main movement of the culture is against it. All the political language, all that is just rot. But I do think there's this huge cultural grasping toward something that won't be so, you know, frou-frou and, and slip out of our grasp mm-hmm. and, and uh, uh, just make us think it's ridiculous. And yet also something that is open enough to engage those parts of us that that we don't understand. You can listen again and share this conversation with Christian Wyman through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with Christian Wyman, a poet and essayist and the former editor of Poetry Magazine. He was agnostic for a number of years after a Texas Baptist upbringing, though he says he was never really at ease with the word agnostic. Christian Wyman became actively religious again in his late 30s during a period in which he fell in love with his wife and was diagnosed with a rare and mysterious form of blood cancer. We've been talking about the hunger for faith and the challenges of faith for people now. In an essay on this subject called A Hive of Nerves, which he published in The American Scholar in 2010, Christian Wyman asked this, How does one remember God, reach for God, realize God in the midst of one's life if one is constantly being overwhelmed by that life? You've written about um, God, just the word. Well, not just the word, the idea. You've written about how it's difficult for modern people. And you talk about like existential anxiety, which is something that all the classic philosophers and theologians wrote about even in, in the 20th century, you know, Niebuhr. Right. It's the, cla- the anxiety, essential anxiety that's at the heart of the human condition. You know, when I'm reading you, I'm thinking, gosh, I don't think there are lots of people now who are right in the middle of things writing about this. But, but actually what you helped me see is that 
we we do talk about this all the time, but we don't talk about it in that way. We we talk about how our technology is driving us crazy, how we have to create downtime and right, how we don't have space in our lives for what matters. It's just the the trappings of this existential anxiety are very different and also very new. Um, yeah, we talk about our we've deflected the cell the soul into the into questions of the self. We you know uh-huh. we we uh um uh, and there's a great quote from Fanny Howard. She talks about the self has replaced the soul with the with the fist of survival. That we've created a a kind of uh, climate in which to survive, we need all need to hone ourselves, and and so right. we you know we develop and and hone ourselves and we project those selves in all kinds of various ways. And you know whether it's Facebook or whatever we're doing, uh, we think of our lives as being successful to the extent that those selves are ratified and by other people. And, and uh, we've gotten away from the notion of the soul. It can be a real shock to find somebody who is you know, suddenly talking about those things quite openly. Um, I mean, I, I, I am a Christian. I believe that Christ comes alive in communion between people. And I think you... Um, Sometimes I'll think all kinds of things are wrong with my life. Like, you know, my, my job is messing me up. My, my writing is messed up. Something's messed up. And then I'll have a conversation uh, with someone about a religious topic or, you know, or, or it's spiritually informed in some way and it's honest. And even if we don't get anywhere, even if we disagree, mm-hmm. uh, the air has been cleared in me. And and I realized that in some ways that I was dealing with all these things that weren't the ground, uh, weren't weren't bedrock, you know, or that they, were, they weren't the ground of my being. And I'm I'm trying to take care of things, um, the structures on top instead of the ground of my being. And I I find that often all you need is some kind of conversation with someone, even if it's just expressing pure anxiety. Right, which just names uh, that, yeah. even if it doesn't tie it up. Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. Just names it and shares it, and yeah. that it can stabilize you in the world. And I think that something also that modern people will identify with in the way you talk about faith is about the animating aspect of doubt in that, like even in your prayers, you know, even in the yeah. act of going to church. It's not something separate. Yeah. It's not a problem. It's just part yeah. of it. Well, there's this other poem. It, it, let me read this other yeah. poem from the same book, Every Riven Thing. It's not adjacent to it in the book, but it is in my mind. It's called Hammer is the Prayer. There is no consolation in the thought of God, he said, slamming another nail in another house another havoc had half taken. Grace is not consciousness, nor is it beyond, to hell with remembrance, to hell with heaven. Hammer is the prayer of the poor and the dying. And as wind in some lordless random comes to rest, and all the disquieted dust within, peace came to the hinterlands of our minds, too remote to know, but peace nonetheless. Hmm. I wrote several poems after that, uh, like this one, where God is actually, you know, expunged from this poem. There is no consolation in the thought of God, this poem starts. And I wrote others that not only did they, you know, did they not credit the idea of heaven, they actually mocked the notion, actually uh, made fun of it. And and I didn't do this purposefully. I mean, the poems got written, you know, they, they, did, yeah. they, uh, they happened to me. And so I, I sort of looked up in the aftermath of them, and you know, thought, what in the world is going on? Why do, why am I writing these? And I think it's very much what you said that uh, doubt is so woven in with what I think of as faith that it can't be separated. And I am convinced that the same God that might call me to, to sing of God at, at one time might call me at another to sing of godlessness, and that. Um, Sometimes when I think of all of this energy that's going on, all of this, what we've talked about, these different uh, people trying to find some way of uh, naming and sharing their belief, I think I think it may be the case that God calls 
some people to unbelief in order that faith can take new forms. Mm. Let's go back to the idea that you discovered love at the same time that you discovered faith. In a mature relationship, in love as in faith, the feeling isn't always there, right? That initial clarity and intensity is is not a constant part of actually being vital and growing. But it's part of the health of the thing. Yeah, I think that's... uh... I hadn't thought of that, but that's helpful for me to, to think of it that way. It, um, uh, yeah, I think you that's... You know, if we're grown-ups uh, about this stuff, right? If we're grown-ups about faith, then... Then why can't we all get together and, and uh, lament the fact that there's no God? You know, I think... Uh, well, I mean, the, the Bible is actually full of moments like that, too. Yes. You know, uh, I think that is part of any mature faith. You're right, but I... Uh, like so many people, tend to fall into despair at those moments and think, oh, my God, I don't believe in anything. And, yeah, well, we fall and, into uh, those moments of despair in our love relationships as well, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 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 I wonder, um, there's a lot of language about death in religion and in poetry. And I wonder if some of it feels, I mean, how your perspective on that has changed, being, as we've said, a person who's more conscious of his own mortality than most of us. I mean, you've faced death as, you know, as possibly something in the near term. And, um, you know, death and transcendence, death and beauty, death and death as a choice, death and discovering what really matters. Do you, do you hear those kinds of, that kind of language differently now? I sure do. I, uh, I hear that kind of carpe diem language. There's a famous line from uh, Wallace Stevens, death is the mother of beauty, you know, meaning that we, we can't, uh, can't ever perceive our lives until we look through it through the lens of death. But if you look through it through the lens of death, then it's suddenly much more uh, abundant and beautiful and sharp. And, and uh, I have come to think that that is just a load of crap. Uh, I think it's, <laughs> I think, uh, yeah. I think anyone who could write that line is, was someone for whom death was an abstraction. And, uh, you know, a kind of pleasant abstraction, actually, that uh, as it is, death is an abstraction for all of us. And even if you get, uh, as I have been, you know, close to dying in the last year, uh, even if you get that close, it is still an abstraction. Not as much of an abstraction, but you simply cannot imagine your own death and the mind will not do it. Hmm. And you, you, you can't quite do it. Hmm. And I think that... Um, we actually have to have the past and the future uh, in any... We, if you think about it, we have no present. You know, we, we're always remembering there is no actual present, just, just, just the way reality is. It takes that long for our brains to process the instant. Mm. Um, we're, we're always remembering events and we're always projecting some sort of future. And I think that's where meaning, that's how we get meaning in our lives. But I do... I, I feel more that my imagination keeps opening onto these eccentric heavens and, <laughs> and, uh, and I have to give them credit. I have to give them their due. much more moved. I think if you think of someone like Wallace Stevens, he sat back and said, death is the mother of beauty, hence from her shall come fulfillment to all our dreams and our desires. It's very distant, it's very detached, it's a very abstract notion of how we live our lives. I'm much more moved by someone like the Russian poet Osip Mandelstam, and I happen to just have yes. translated his a few of his poems, and let me read you this. This yes. is the last poem that Mandelstam wrote. Now, Mandelstam was hounded to death by Stalin. And uh, one of the reasons was he wrote a famous poem that was a mockery of Stalin, which he recited to some friends. And in those days, people could, they were so used to hearing poetry and reciting poetry that they could hear it once and and keep it in their heads. And someone memorized the poem from his recitation and then took Mm. it to Stalin Mm. and his fate was sealed. So here's the last day of 
Mandelstam's writing life, not the last day of his life. We, he died in a transit camp not long after this. Picking through garbage was the last anyone saw of him. And he knew what was about to happen to him. I mean, he knew all too well, and he was composing these poems right up until the end. Uh, the last day he died, he wrote either two or three poems, depending on how you put these poems together, but this was one of them. And I was alive in the blizzard of the blossoming pear. Myself I stood in the storm of the bird-cherry tree. It was all leaf-life and star-shower, unerring, self-shattering power, and it was all aimed at me. What is this dire delight, flowering, fleeing, always earth? What is being? What is truth? Blossoms rupture and rapture the air, all hover and hammer, time intensified and time intolerable, sweetness raveling rot. It is now. It is not. Now that seems to me an incredible expression of hope and persistence. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, says somewhere, you know, hope is a condition of your soul, not a response to the circumstances in which you find yourself. I'm mangling that somehow. But uh, think of Osip Mandelstam writing this, knowing what he was going to, and compare that with Wallace Stevens sitting back and saying, death is the mother of beauty. <laughs> right. Well, I, I keep that line you said a minute ago, the eccentric heavens, that, this, I do, that, that I also hear that there. Yeah, these, uh, these strange sort of um, ways of surviving seem to keep occurring to me, though I, you know, I, if you ask me, do I believe in heaven? No, I don't really believe in heaven in the way that people conceive of it. Hmm. And yet it somehow keeps asserting itself in my imagination. <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with poet Christian Wyman. So if I ask you um, to think about yourself in church all those years ago in West Texas, the church you grew up in, which was just given to you like the air you breathed, Mm -hmm. and then when you're in church now, What's going on that's different? How is that experience different? Well, it's it's utterly different. I think it's a it's a weaker experience now. I mean, I'm just too conscious. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm unable to let myself. I wish I were able to let myself go in ways that yeah. uh, those people did in my childhood and still do. And when I go to my mother's church now, it's one of those big mega churches and. And, uh, you know, I don't agree with their theology, and I don't like a, a lot of the ways that they commercialize their services, but it is uh, an incredibly diverse church, and it, and the people are intensely involved mm-hmm. with their—they're treating it as if their whole life were at stake. And the churches I go to, liberal Protestant churches, it seems pretty casual. I wish there were some credible middle ground. I wish there were, there were some way of uh, harnessing that the intensity that I felt in my childhood in more sophisticated ways. That may be another way of describing what the new language that you that we talked about that a lot of people now are searching for. It's not just new language, it's new forms, right? Yeah. And I think art is a big has a big role to play in that. Mm. You know, art, art, the encompassing art. I mean if I think of some of the most intense experiences in my life, they are artistic experiences. Mm-hmm. And not simply making art, but responding to it. And I think if a church could allow those experiences to happen without necessarily putting them in place and saying they have to be, you know, they mean this in our liturgy or they they represent right. this. Right, they get you know, very self-conscious, you know, when people just right. inject art into worship. It, right. That's the danger yeah. there. You're talking yeah, about but it I've, being part I've of seen it done well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've seen it done well where it, it is just, in fact, I did, I'm just coming from a, uh, I was out on Whidbey Island mm-hmm. at a uh, conference and the people there put on, I guess the students did, they put on a sort of makeshift service and uh, it was made up of songs that 
clearly had been written by uh, one of the people there and had just you know sort of been set to music on the spot and mm. and there was a poem and it was unlike any service that I had been to. Just, they just sort of did one thing after another, which were all addressed to God, uh, and that was the service. And I found it very beautiful, very moving, uh, sort of the perfect thing for me. Hmm. In the preface to Ambition and Survival, this collection of writings, um, which was 2007, so it was a few years back, you wrote, I still believe that a life in poetry demands absolutely everything, including, it has turned out for me, the belief that a life in poetry demands absolutely everything. Would you tell me what you mean when you say that? Oh, no. What a paradox. <laughs> <Or do> you... <laughs> <laughs> um, it's five years yeah, ago, gonna... so maybe it's not still true. But if it is, what is it? What do you mean? I'm trying to wrap my head, my mind around it. For years, I... I um, uh, there's a there's a poem I love by a Canadian poet named Robert Bringhurst, and it starts like this: "These poems, these poems, these poems," she said, "are poems with no love in them. These are the poems of a man who would leave his wife and child because they made noise in his study," she said. "These are the poems of a man who would murder his mother to claim the inheritance. These are the poems of a man like Plato," she said meaning something I did not comprehend, but which nevertheless offended me. These are the poems of a man who would rather sleep with himself than with women, she said. These are the poems of a man with eyes like a draw knife, hands like a pickpocket's hands, woven of water and logic and hunger, with no strand of love in them. These poems are as heartless as birdsong, as unmeant as elm leaves, which if they love, Love only the wide blue sky and the air and the idea of elm leaves. Self-love is an ending, she said, not a beginning. Love means love of the things sung, not of the song or the singing. These poems, she said. You are, I said, beautiful. That is not love she said rightly. I didn't mean to quote that whole thing, but mm. but for years I carried that poem like it was a kind of totem in my mind. It was just it expressed to me so perfectly what tensions that I felt between my life and my life as an artist and my my life. And I felt that I was giving everything to poetry and you had to give everything to poetry. And yet at the same time I felt some sort of essential energy missing from some of my poems. And um, I had to eventually give up that notion that you could give your whole life to poetry, that poetry could be this abstract thing that you could devote your life to. I mean, I'd made a god. You talk about idolatry. I'd made a, a mm. god out of it. And I had to have that shattered in order to uh, come to write some of the poems that are in every riven thing. Uh, I had to really have that notion tested severely. I think I'd like to end by having you read um, at least maybe maybe one of the poems that illustrate what you just said, the place you've come to where that paradox is less agonizing. Um, so the title is Every Riven Thing, and riven is kind of an Old Testament word, uh, uh, meaning broken, sundered, torn apart. Uh, this was actually the first poem that I wrote after years of silence. All those years I mentioned, I, I had gone, I think it was three years, without having written a poem. And in the middle of all those dramatic things happening to me, this was one of them. I sat down one day and found myself writing again, and this poem came to me all of a sudden. And it was quite a shock to write a poem, and quite a shock to write a poem, especially like this one. God goes... Belonging to every riven thing he's made, sing his being simply by being the thing it is. Stone and tree and sky, man who sees and sings and wonders why, God goes. Belonging to every riven thing he's made means a storm of peace. Think of the atoms inside the stone. Think of the man who sits alone, trying to will himself into a stillness where God goes belonging. 
To every riven thing he's made, there is given one shade, shaped exactly to the thing itself. Under the tree, a darker tree. Under the man, the only man to see. God goes belonging to every riven thing. He's made the things that bring him near, made the mind that makes him go. A part of what man knows, apart from what man knows, God goes belonging to every riven thing he's made. Christian Wyman is a professor in religion and literature at the Yale Institute of Sacred Music and a former editor of Poetry Magazine. His two new books are Hammer is the Prayer and Joy, 100 Poems. On Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambilay, Malka Fenevesi, Aaron Farrell, Jill Ganass, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, and Bertina Davis. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.